Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I am Curious Orange. I'm just orange. <laughs> this is a factually correct statement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How are you, Kevin? I'm fan dabby dozy. Nice to see you again. It feels like all of six minutes since we were last talking to one another. <laughs> indubitably, sir. Indubitably. Welcome to Album Class, everyone. Kev, what album are you taking us through today? So this week we will be completing our clash by uh, going through Yazoo's debut, um, Upstairs at Eric's. Yep, indeed. So it is the second part of our Vince Clark derby. So yeah, I went through Depeche Mode's debut speaking spell last week. And Kev will be, as he's just said, leading us through Yazoo's debut today. Before that, however, Kev, it is your turn to accuse Video of murdering the radio star. And how will you be doing this? So I will be bringing to the court's attention the video for Temptation by Electro Pioneer's New Order. Uh, a very interesting video it is too. Yeah, the the reason I brought this to the pod's attention is it's slightly unusual. So it's a video that was created for the original song uh, much later than the actual song. So the video that is available on YouTube, which we will tweet out, is it's from 2006. Um, it was titled The Temptation of Victoria by filmmaker Michael Schamberg. Victoria Bergsman um, of the Swedish band The Concrete acts as the protagonist in the video. And it features a young woman who steals a vinyl copy of the song's original 12-inch release, along with a bouquet from a flower shop before returning to her apartment, and then um, has a dance to the music, really. And that's essentially the the video. It, the storyline of it is thought to be potentially a reference to Ian Curtis, um, former frontman of Joy Division, the precursor to New Order, who apparently used to shoplift records quite a, quite a bit. So um, it's thought to have a, that be a reference to it. And obviously uh, the bouquet of flowers as well um, refers to other Joy Division songs as well. Yeah, well, and, and indeed, as we have mentioned before, when Ian Curtis was, was found having tragically committed suicide, there was a, a, a copy of Iggy Pop's The Idiot on his turntable. So, uh, you know, some additional symbolism there that I picked up on, at least, in terms of, the, the you know, the putting things mm-hmm. on, a, on a turntable. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting video. I, it's a really simple concept. I like the way it transitions from monochrome to colour at the point at which Victoria Bergsman puts puts the record on. So at first it's just the, the bouquet and I was like, oh, is this going to be a sort of a bit of a Schindler's List style? You know what I mean? With the, with the, the girl in the red coat, obviously. But then no, the whole, the whole picture then, then transitions into high contrast colour really. And yeah, as I, it, as I said, it's a really simple concept. I had never seen this before. And as you said, it's really interesting to, to watch a video that was made over 20 years after the song was originally released. 
And it also gave me an excuse to just bring Temptation to the table, which is an absolute belter. I've always liked that as a song uh, by New Order. So, yeah, it, it gave me an excuse to bring it. And it is an interesting video as well. Yeah, it, it is an interesting video. It, it's a great song. It It is quintessential New Order. You've got a great beat to it. You've got some great electro tweaks in there. And you've got an all-time classic Peter Hook baseline, and then you've got Barney singing over the top of it. You know, when you come to New Order, these are the elements you expect to hear. Yeah, boss drums from Stephen Morris, Gillian Gilbert, or Gillian Morris as she is now, bringing some brilliant uh, keyboards working. Barney doing his doing his bit, and Peter Hook with a boss bassline. Yeah, indeed, uh, good video, good song. And an interesting choice. So, as Kev said, we'll tweet out the link to that. I still haven't got round to creating a uh, video playlist of, of all our choices. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, in part, that's because I realised that doing so would mean I have to include that fucking Michael Bay-directed video on it. <laughs> so I'm kind of reluctant <laughs> to do it at all. See, you made the error of just including something to have a go at Michael Bay. I haven't thus far included a director that I don't like in order just to have a pop at him. I stand by my judgment. Because I can do that anyway. I can riff off enough to be able to just say that Michael Bay has the eye of a pornographer. (laughs) He does indeed. I regret nothing, uh, (laughs) apart from watching Godzilla vs. Kong, because it's fucking dreadful. Anyway, that's a long-time callback. Let's move on. (laughs) Uh, Kev... Take us through the debut album by Yazoo, Upstairs at Eric's, please. Okay, so Upstairs at Eric's is the debut album by Yazoo. So no link to the flavoured milk drink in uh, Western Europe. (laughs) The band were also known in um, the US and Canada as Yaz. Um, There's no link to the plastic uh, generation. Plastic population, not plastic generation. Damn it. So Yaz and the plastic population of The Only Way is Up fame. That was double Z. Yes. Yaz in the Yazoo sense was single Z. So to explain why they were called Yaz in the US and Yazoo in the UK. Um, So the name Yazoo was apparently taken from a blues record label, Yazoo Records. And when Yazoo, Yaz came to release their their first single in the US, they were threatened with a three and a half million pound lawsuit by Yazoo Records. So that, coupled with the fact that there was already a sort of little known rock band in the US called Yazoo, meant that they decided, let's just shorten our name to Yaz to save ourselves a fucking world of pain. And I'm going to say, good choice, guys. Yeah, well done. Uh, You didn't go down the fat boy slim route of... uh... (laughs) Having to give away all your money. <laughs> Still love you, Norman. Kev, don't upset Norman. He's our most famous listener. He's our most loyal <laughs> fan. <laughs> so, anyway, getting back to the album. So, Up Says That Alex was released in the UK on Mute Records on the 20th of August, 1982. It's produced by the band, which consists of Vince Clark, who we have mentioned a wee bit in, uh, in the previous week, and Alison Moyer. And it was also produced by Eric Radcliffe with some assistance from the mute label boss Daniel Miller on some of the tracks. So the album itself uh, was named after Eric Radcliffe's Blackwing Studios where the album was recorded, hence Upstairs at Eric's. 
And we need to we need to sort of cover the background of how Yazoo formed, really. And we've we've covered mm. a wee touch of it in the previous week. So Alison Moyer had known Vince, but they weren't they weren't like busy mates or anything. Um, Alison Moyer says, I first met Vince uh, when I was 11 years old. We went to the same Saturday morning music school. It was a council run thing where I believe he was playing violin and I was playing oboe. Quite the departure from what they became known for doing. (laughs) Indeed. Also, I'm disappointed with Alison Moyer for um, mispronouncing violin and oboe mabow. And I'd like to know who played saxophone. (laughs) And the customary Simpsons reference is covered. So, obviously, we've talked about what Vince Clark was up to. So, you know, obviously, had founded Depeche Mode, quit in November 81, and basically, he'd written a new song and wanted to find someone to to record it. And he was worried that by walking out on Depeche Mode, he would lose his record deal with Mute Records, and he wanted to show them that he he still had something to offer. So, in a 2008 interview, he said... When I left left Depeche, I wasn't sure I'd still have a record deal. I was keen to play the label something of my own. So I wrote the song Only You, but needed someone to demo it with. Alison happened to be advertising in a local paper, so I called her. Now, Alison Moyet, so her background is very different from where she ended up. Mm-hmm. Um, she'd sang in sort of various punk and blues bands in her hometown. And the kind of stuff that she was doing was more akin to Dr. Feelgood kind of that pub rock scene, as opposed to what Vince Clark had got got himself in, involved in. So she placed an advert in the, um, not the local paper, in the Melody Maker, which at the time was a poorly regarded UK weekly music magazine, asking for musicians to form a rootsy blues band after her uh, most recent group, which is the fantastically named Screaming Abdabs, had broken up. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> So yeah, just I just want to read read a couple of things in terms of what. So firstly, Alice and Moyer about their meeting, um, and this comes back to some of the stuff you were saying. She says everyone thinks it was a melody maker ad that brought Vince and I together, but I'd known him since I was eleven. As you just said, we both went to the same Saturday music school. I never spoke to him, but remember him because he and his two brothers all had white blonde hair. They looked like a family of ducks. <laughs> Basildon back then was a new town and had no culture, so just about everyone was in a band, and it was just a matter of time before we did meet. When I did place that ad in Melody Maker, I was looking for a band to sing with. He called me at my parents' house and asked if I'd sing on a demo he'd just written. So then Vince Clark, of that demo recording, he spoke to the quietest in 2012, and he said... We were using this tiny four-track tape recorder that I had just the backing track already done. She came around to my flat in Basildon and just sang it in one or maybe two takes. The song wasn't particularly challenging for someone with Alison's abilities, but immediately in the recording there was this sense of seriousness and almost pathos. It was a really great performance. I mean, just to add to that and sort of the links between the two, so Moya had been in the same class at school as um, Martin Gore and Andy Fletcher, but hadn't had any contact with Clark himself, but remembers him as an outsider who, with his brothers, would wear T-shirts proclaiming their Christianity. Frankie says pray. (laughs) So following the recording of the demo, Clark takes it to the label boss, Daniel Miller, and he recalls that at first he didn't seem to be interested, so he tried to give it to him and he didn't show much interest. 
I brought it in and put it on. And the whole time it was playing, Daniel was messing around with a synthesizer. He said he liked it, but carried on doing what he was doing. And that was it. It was only when the publishers took an interest did he brighten up. So Mute asked the duo to record the song as a single and to make an album together. And at this point, not only obviously the demo, which is only you, Clark has also written Don't Go, which they were thinking of potentially having as a B-side uh, to Only You. I mean, fucking hell, what, what a single that would have been. Oh, yeah. But they decided, quite rightly, that it was too good to be a B-side. And so they wrote the song Situation together for the single's B-side. Now, the song Situation becomes really important in their story because later on, it becomes a hit in the clubs in America because it was remixed by DJ Francois Kevorkian. And against the band's wishes, it was released as, as their debut single in the US and it reached number 73 on the Billboard Hot 100. So it established them in America before the release of Only You, which which is mad. It was, it was their B-side. It was, obviously, it's not included on the album, but yeah. um, it is included on the album on the American release. So yeah, this is a, this is another link between the two that we didn't talk about last week. Actually, it's it's uh, albums where um, songs that well singles that were released in America that were included on the album over there, but were not on the UK release. So yeah, we will not be going through situation as a song on today's show. But as you said, very important in their ultimate success. And if you go back to our top trumps round last week, this album was a considerable success. Mm-hmm. So the the album itself, as we said, was recorded at Blackwing Studios. And essentially, Vince Clark goes to Blackwing Studios because it's the only studio that he knows. He's only done one album. <laughs> so he goes there. But the, the studio had been booked during the day by fellow mute artist Fad Gadget, who used it all during the day. So they had to take the sort of night shift to get the album produced. And Daniel Miller was producing Fad Gadget, so he wasn't available to produce the album. So the studio's owner, Eric Radcliffe, comes on to do production duties. And it was named Upstairs at Eric's in recognition of his output. And as we will get to, his mam also appears on the album. (laughs) Yeah, so... um. Two things. Firstly, can we just say, like, the name Fad Gadget is a brilliant name for an artist. So much so that if he didn't have an album cover that was just a picture of a Newton's cradle, then he's missed a massive trick, considering this was the early 80s. (laughs) And secondly, uh, just to read a couple of quotes in terms of the recording process. So, to your point then around the shifts they were working, so to speak, because Fad Gadget was recording at the same time. Again, that quietest interview in 2012, Vince Clark said, we were recording at Blackwing Studios where we recorded the first Depeche Mode album. It was the only studio we knew and the engineer, Eric Radcliffe, was and is fantastic. Back then, Blackwing was the studio that Mute were using for all their artists, so Fad Gadget was recording his second album at the same time. He was doing the regular hours of 11 in the day till 11 in the evening. So we would get there about 5 or 6 in the morning and just do the early shift. Uh, and then Alison Moyer of the recording process. And this is something that that, that comes in later when, when it comes to sort of what happened next for the band, really. But, but in terms of Alison Moyer of recording this album, she says... 
we had this strange studio relationship where he would just bring a song to me or I would bring a song to him and he would do what he did without asking me anything and I would do what I did without asking him anything. There was no conversation. I would write a song and for the most part he would just arrange it up and then I'd sing on it. Or he'd sing me a song on the guitar and then I'd play with the melody or not, add vocal pieces and then sing it in the way I wanted to. There was no talk about whether it was the gentle song or it was a dance song. I just sang it as I saw fit. So just to add to that, so again from the Vince Clark Quietus interview. So he talks about the kind of recording process. So part of the charm of that album is a naivety. There really wasn't a profound concept that was running through the recording. I didn't really know what I was doing in the studio, and Alison hadn't much experience of being in a recording studio, so everything was new. We'd make one sound, and we think it was great, and just stop there, and we wouldn't make any more sounds. It wasn't like we were continually honing or overproducing songs, because everything at the time sounded fresh. That's why a lot of the tracks only have eight or nine elements to them. So that's a really interesting quote. Because I think that is central to the sound and the success of this album. Yeah, it like it didn't need to be a majorly. It didn't need to be the wall of sound. It is naive and dead simple, but it's incredibly effective. Indeed, it is. Okay, so how did you first come across the album? So, even though I chose this clash, and whilst I'm very familiar with certainly the singles from this album. This is the first time, researching this clash, is the first time I've ever listened to the whole album. How about you? So again, never heard it, have heard the more famous pieces from the album, but yeah, never listened to the whole album. So yeah, I was I was really pleased that it, this was a clash that was entirely new to me. Great stuff. Should we talk about some artwork? Yes. So the album cover depicts two mannequins in a sparsely furnished loft, facing each other over a table, with the lower part of the dummy's body seated on chairs whilst the upper portions are perched on the edges of the table. It was shot by uh, photographer Joe Lyons at his first photo studio in North London. And uh, Joe Lyons himself said, I just shot some uh, furniture for a furniture designer and I got paid with the furniture. I chose dummies and started work. Fortuitous series of events. I felt that the high-tech furniture worked really well with the rough look of the room. And I put the cake which was actually the top of my wedding cake as a focus on the table. (laughs) I enjoy that quote, but I I really like Vince Clark's, uh, again, from that Quietus interview, which is an absolute cracker. So Vince Clark says, I remember seeing the cover artwork and really liking it. I actually went to see the setup, which was in the guy's uh, photographic studio. But what really blew me away was that it cost so much. I was fresh off the dole and I couldn't believe you could charge that much for a photograph. Don't get me wrong, I did appreciate it. I think it's a really fantastic cover and completely unique and well worth the money. <laughs> it's that little sign-off, well worth the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not complaining about the price. It, it just surprised me. Can I go back to what Joe Lyon said? I got paid with the furniture. No, it's lovely furniture and all. But no, can I have some actual money, please? I need to eat. <laughs> it reminds me of it. So this is going to be a hell of a tangent, even for Album Clash. So I remember watching a documentary about um, the Ceausescu's. <laughs> I did not expect you to go there. <laughs> Fuck. No. Sorry. Please carry on. This is going to be classic album clash. 
so yeah, like they came over to Britain in the late seventies, and with like we were trying to flog them some arms. So I think they they put in an order for Rolls Royce engines or something like that, and they attempted to pay for them with a load of oranges. Because <laughs> everyone wants Romanian oranges. <laughs> yeah, Romanian oranges are the best. That's like um, football transfers between non-league clubs back in the day. <laughs> we'll get you a bag of training kit and some balls. <laughs> How the fuck have we gone from the album cover of Yasu's debut album to the fucking Ceausescu's to shit football transfer fees? Oh, dear me. That's album clash. Why are you people listening to this nonsense? (laughs) Norman, stay with us. (laughs) Okay. The other thing I want to say is that studio apartment is like every fucking hipster's wet dream fantasy house and would now set you back in central London about four million quid. Yeah, I mean, like, at that time, it was probably like a squat of some description. But yeah, the the way it's set up and everything is basic. You'd have to mortgage most of your organs. I mean, as, as I alluded to last week, it's by far the better of the two covers, isn't it? It's it's a really, oh yeah, really good image. I, I mean, we do, we don't even need to get into font chat, and I like the Yazoo font. Isn't it just Arial? Oh no, it's a it, it's a much more um, interesting interesting font. It's like the kind of nineteen twenties billboard style one that's that's on Word. I can't, I can't remember what it's called, but that, it, it's, a, it's a nice font. So we don't need to get into font chat, but we have anyway. Yeah, because <laughs> it's album clash. That's what we do. Um, yeah, it's a much more memorable album cover. It's much starker. I think it, in a strange way, it fits the theme of the album better than uh, mm-hmm. Speak and Spell. So yeah, if we are comparing the two covers, this one is the better one. Well, it's not a swan on some fucking twigs. <laughs> Indeed, it's not. <laughs> okay, so should I start taking us through um, Upstairs at Eric's? Please do. So, we open the album with Don't Go. Boom. Christ, I mean, you know, you've left Depeche Mode and you've formed your own band and that's the opener to your album. It's a fucking statement. It, it is. And, okay, so I know there were singles in between, but taking the albums, because that's literally the concept of this podcast, you finish one album with Just Can't Get Enough, which is a fucking brilliant pop song. And then you think, well, how do I take that and make it into something which is even more iconic? Uh, you write Don't Go, and then you get fucking Alison Moyet to sing it. Jesus Christ. So another all-time classic Vince Clark riff to start it off. A fierce beat. There's a lot more bass throughout this album mm-hmm. than there was on Speaking Spell for me, and that is clear within the beat here. And then you get this phenomenal blues R&B inflected voice that just belts it out. We're going to probably repeat ourselves several times, but just so soulful, deep and meaningful. Like, yeah. her voice is just utterly stunning. And, like, I don't know how old Alison Moyer was at this point. I'm presuming she was pretty young. Fucking hell, what a, what a voice. She's 23. I, I mean, wow. 
Yeah, precisely. What a voice. Wow. <sighs> she elevates an already great track. Yeah. Well, she turns it into a classic. Mm, she does turn it into a classic. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and uh, again, as we said on a couple of tracks last week, you hear the poppiness, the catchiness of the riff in particular. But there's some really dark lyrics, you know. Came in from the city, walked into the door. I turned around when I heard the sound of footsteps on the floor. Said he was a killer. Now I know it's true. I'm dead when you walk out the door. Hey, babe, I'm hooked on you. Can't stop now, don't you know? I ain't ever going to let you go. Don't go. And again, so it's Vince Clark penned. But the way Alison Moyet sings those lyrics... It's, it'd be far too easy to sing it in a emotionless way, but she doesn't. She brings the emotion throughout. The little inflection she, she gives it when she... Oh, God. It's, as you said, for someone so young to pack so much soul and emotion into a pop song. Wow. Well, I mean, and this is, this is the, the genius of both of them really and the the arrangement is that the way the chorus kind of it ramps up the way she sort of mm-hmm. spits out the the line before and then the the pure emotional punch of don't go and like it's like a play it's a banshee wail you know yeah. like it's like properly like uh-huh. screaming to the screaming to the gods kind of thing the fucking hell wow wow is right we are off to an absolute flyer great tune i mean i've got nothing more to add apart from it's a it's an absolute classic yep same here okay so we um move on to the next song on the album which is two pieces also Moya doesn't sound bad on this to be fair but she sounds okay <laughs> yeah she's she, i mean the girl can the girl can hold a tune <laughs> yeah what i find interesting about this song it just in terms of structure it's one verse there's no chorus one verse, and the last lyric is sung up one minute, 15 seconds. So you're not even halfway through the song. The last two minutes is just instrumental. If I had to criticise it, I would say that I'd like more of Alison Moyet singing towards the end, because I do mm-hmm. think it just fades out, and it literally fades out, obviously, but I, I just think it sort of it doesn't know how to end itself as a song. I, th- I think for me, the, part of the thing that Vince Clark gets so right on most elements of the songs on the on this album is there's a kind of sparseness to the synth sounds that works in a great kind of juxtaposition with that kind of huge soulful gut punch you get from her singing and like yeah i agree with you that i, I want more alison moyer as opposed to less on this on this track and if where they're both in simpatico, where you've got that sparse sound with a great riff mm-hmm. and her her voice, it's it's magical. So it's it's a good song, but it could could yeah. be absolutely great if it had more of her. I agree. Okay, so so I just want to just want to talk a, a little bit about influences and things that I think were influenced by this. So I can definitely hear again, Human League and OMD in the sound of certainly that first half, if you like, Uh, and Gary Newman in particular, actually. But I can also hear things that were influenced by this, and I'm I'm going right up to date, you know, LaRue, Goldfrap as another one, and even LCD sound system I can hear in this. 
Yeah, I mean, without question, the many later acts, particularly with a female vocalist, took elements of this because they set a huge, they set such a great template of having a really good hooky song with someone who could really sing. And quite a few of the examples that you've given there are of fantastic, um, fantastic singers. Yeah, absolutely. So, despite my criticism of it, I really like this song. To me, it puts me in mind of the soundtracks of 80s teen movies, you know, mostly directed by John Hughes, let's be honest. So it's, it, you know, <laughs> this should be in the triumphant scene where our protagonist, she stands up to her overbearing father. And at first he's outraged at her insolence, but also he swells with pride and with emotion at the fact that she's becoming and growing into being an independent woman. <laughs> I mean, I I agree with you that I do, I do like this song. Whilst it could be an absolute belter, and it's not far off, but yeah, I do I do like this song. I'm not necessarily sure about the full you going full John Hughes on it, but you know, maybe that's just because you're you're of a mindset. <laughs> Listen, John Hughes was a big part of my childhood. I'm not going to lie. I'm mine too. Uh, right, shall we move on? Yeah, let's uh, move on to... So the next song on the album is Bad Connection. Again, I had loads of fun with this song. It's really good. It's great up-tempo. It's got a good riff Mm -hmm. and a cracking hook. And again, Alison Moyer sounds amazing. Like, obviously, we've heard her voice through through the years and stuff so she didn't come come to us as a surprise listening to this to this album for the first time if you just come to yazoo yeah in the early 80s and you heard her you're like who the fuck is this because she she can sing well you've that's so you're a depeche mode fan and you've absolutely loved speak and spell you know vince clark's left you know that depeche mode are carrying on so you're still going to follow them but you think, oh, what's Vince Clark going on to next? I'll have a listen to this. Like, Christ on a bike, what is this? Oh, my God. She's incredible. Okay, we've already said lots of nice things and made lots of nice noises about Alison Moyer. Get used to it, guys, because certainly for me, at least, that's going to carry on for the next 40 minutes or so. <laughs> so I think this, and it comes across more so on later tracks but this is one of the tracks on the album where you can see what an accomplished singer she is in terms of blending the influences and the styles that she has been used to singing in Mm -hmm. into something so powerful and what I like about Vince Clark's playing is that when it needs to dominate it does, he's got that flamboyance if you like but when Alison Moyet needs to take centre stage, the composition of the song allows her to. Yeah, he he doesn't have, and I'm sure you're going to kick again, again this, he doesn't have a lead guitarist mentality. He doesn't need to piss over her chips. Fuck off. <laughs> he, he takes a step back where he needs to, and he takes a step forward where he needs to. He understands that... There are moments where her voice needs to be highlighted, and then there's moments where you just, you know, you want to get people up and dancing. He, and he he does it really yeah. well. And I mean, you know, we've not really said anything about Eric Radcliffe's production, but it, you know, he does a cracking job on this uh, alongside the band. Yeah, he does. He definitely does. Just to your point, however, this is why I like to be in bands where I was both the lead vocalist 
and the lead guitarist because then I was only ever competing with myself. <laughs> Everyone else was just a session musician doing what I told them to do. Isn't that basically the mindset of every lead guitarist, though? Only the ones that can sing, mate. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of them still think they can sing. We know Keith Richards had a go. <laughs> Very fair point. So, can I? I just want to talk about some of the lyrics on Bad Connection, if I may. Sure. So, to me, I think this is about someone who is leaving their lover, but being too afraid or not wanting to, whatever it is, to, you know, do it in in person. I wish they'd fix the wires because my baby don't know that I'm leaving in the morning and I'm ready to go. Can you hear me? Can you hear me at all? Got to get the operator, make a telephone call. And if I write a letter, it won't get there on time. I'll only reach you, baby, on the telephone line. Can you hear me? I've been calling all day. I like this a lot. It's got a real poppy catchiness to it, but it's also got a real depth to it as well. And um, uh, that ticks a lot of boxes for me. Yeah, it's great. So the first three songs, having a lovely time. Really enjoying myself here. As am I. Okay, so then we move on to I before E after C. Mm. And it's it's quite hard to describe this because it's not really a song as such. It puts me in mind of Pink Floyd's stuff. It's a bit like, I, I don't know if they needed to have a certain length of the album. It does feel like a bit of a waste of time. This is where Eric Radcliffe's mum, though, um, provides some of the extra <laughs> chit-chat on the song. So... <laughs> As I have written, why does Ma Radcliffe sound like Nanny from Duckula? Because <laughs> she does. <laughs> she really does. I hate this. <laughs> I really hate this. It's self-indulgent. So, okay, it's Vince Clark experimenting and exploring cutting up tape samples. So as well as his own voice, it's got Eric Radcliffe's mum and Alison Moyet both separately reading out an instruction manual for a piece of studio equipment. There's a couple of sort of mysterious sounding synth parts that loop and swirl around to try and give you a sense of disorientation whilst everything's going on around. Alison Moyet laughs in it. I can't work out whether it's her laughing at the absurdity of the whole thing or whether it's an affected laugh to make it sound more sinister when did this become a philip glass composition (laughs) yeah it's not a song no it's not and it goes on far too long it's fucking nearly five minutes for christ's sake yeah it is a frustrate frustrating thing because you've started so well yeah, I think I think we just move on from it. It's it's not really a song. That's I think that's why I kind of made a reference to Pink Floyd because it does feel like Floyd are their most self indulgent. Well, it's it's the Sid Barrett Floyd that I, I am no fan of, as you know. It's the whole art school, we're cleverer than you shite. It's self indulgent. It's unnecessary. I hate it. Move on. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we move on to midnight. Which, thankfully, is a return to, one, a song, and two, something that, again, showcases both Vince Clark's amazing talent as a musical arranger and Alison Moyet's beautiful voice. Yeah, absolutely. So this is written by Alison Moyet rather than Vince Clark. It's clearly about someone who 
expressing her regret for for being unfaithful to her lover. Because I love you and I need you, and I should have thought of that before I did you wrong. Yeah, before I did you wrong, I should have thought about it. So I have described this because Alison Moyet's vocal opens the track. It's mesmerizing, her performance on this song. Mm -hmm. She beautifully balances the soulful, anguished way that she sings the verses with the emotional highs of the chorus where she's she's pleading forgiveness for for what she's done uh, and as i mentioned earlier on this is one where vince clark knows that he needs to take a back seat and yes eric radcliffe deserves some recognition for his production on this as well because the synths they just provide a bed for alison moyer to work her magic is what mm-hmm. i've written i Really, really enjoy this. So I've written something almost exactly the same. So the music is so perfectly balanced to beautifully highlight um, her voice because it is like it's really effective and it works, but it's unfussy. It doesn't get in the way or overpower that amazing vocal performance. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I just want to read a quote from Vince Clark, and it's again from that Quietus interview. This is one of his favourite tracks on the album. Uh, he says, uh, one of my favourites would be Midnight, it's a song that Alison wrote. She had it already, and at the time I thought it was a real challenge to orchestrate and write music for. I didn't appreciate it at the time, and I certainly didn't appreciate her vocal performance on that track. Now I do. Absolutely. It's great. So interestingly, uh, the vocal has been sampled four times, all by early 90s Eurodance electronica rave artists. So, you know, clearly it uh, found a niche somewhere. <laughs> clearly. Okay, so should we move on to our next our next song? So, In My Room, not a cover of the Beach Boys track. <laughs> um Indeed. I mean, it's very much not a cover of the fucking Beach Boys track. It's, I don't know what it is. So I have, I have a suggestion as to what it, what it is about. It seems to be written from the perspective of someone suffering from split personality disorder, bipolar disorder, whatever you want to call it. And I think that's why the cut up spoken word parts that come in and out I think that's what they are supposed to signify. It has a relationship to I before E, uh, except how to see. I find it a lot more engaging and arresting and interesting than that track. I don't love it. I appreciate it. I think I like the minimalist sound. Yeah, I, I, I like this a lot more than I did the, the earlier track. I mean, part of it feels a bit like a performance piece. I wouldn't be surprised to to see this at a avant-garde theatre. So what occurred to me whilst you were talking, and I kind of remembered back to the to the quote um from Alison Moye about when, you know, that she knew members of Depeche Mode at school, but she didn't really know Vince Clark because of the family's Christianity. It feels like mm-hmm. potentially it's quite an autobiographical piece. So in my room is that these are the thoughts that are banging around at teenage Vince Clark's head that yeah, okay. he's trying to balance all these different disparate elements. 
I mean, I, d- I don't know that to be the case, but that's sort of what's occurred to me as we've been talking. And I guess the fact that intermittently throughout it, he is reciting the Lord's Prayer would suggest that. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, that makes sense. That is highly plausible. It, it, I mean, it, it may be bollocks, but like <laughs> that's what I managed to write on the back of a fag packet whilst uh, you were talking. Nothing like doing your homework on the bus. <laughs> but no, it's... I, I, it might be it might be right it, it it seems it seems plausible what i would say as i say it, it has a relationship to i before e except after c in the way that it's an experimentation with editing and splicing on this one it fits better it's not as off-putting it, it's at least got some musical elements to it yes yeah, so let's let's move on to a song that it's not bad. <laughs> no, it's not bad at all. <laughs> so if you if you're not aware, the next song on the album is Only You, which can only really be described as heartbreakingly beautiful. It is an absolute mm. it's a dreamy love song. It's beautiful. It everything about it is perfect. It's haunting, it's honest, it's heartfelt everything about it. I'm not surprised that Vince Clark, like as soon as he wrote it, was like, I need someone to fucking sing this. And thank God that Alison Moyer was the person that he stumbled across because it's absolute perfection. I agree entirely. So apparently, or allegedly, because I haven't been able to find any quotes that corroborate it, when he left Depeche Mode, Vince Clark offered this to Martin Gore and Andy Fletcher for Depeche Mode to record, and they turned it down. And if that is true, I'm glad they did, because I cannot imagine Dave Garn singing this song. Certainly not with any... And I like Dave Garn's voice. No. We said this last week, but not with anything like the emotional gut punch with which Alison Moyet sings this, because that's what it is. Yeah, it, you know, like, I couldn't imagine anyone else singing this because it is absolutely pitch perfect. It's just beautiful. It is beautiful. You said you couldn't imagine anyone else singing this. I, I would like to plant in your mind some other people who have sung this, if I may. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, so, one that you may recall... Because, well, so this single, when it was released in March 1982, reached number two in the UK. A cover version the year after uh, outdid that. So in December of 1983, the Christmas number one in the UK was an a cappella version of this song by the Flying Pickets. Yet again, proof that the British public cannot be trusted. Oh, Kev, uh, I've got much, much, much worse than that. No, but that is that is simple proof because for that song to be more successful than this, which is an utterly beautiful song, like and the the Flying Pickets version, they do it very well. Mm-hmm. But fuck off, British public. Yes. Uh, I'm glad you're angry. Are you ready to get angrier? <laughs> Uh, yes so this song has also been covered by Enrique Iglesias in both Spanish and English two separate versions dear god (laughs) Uh, Kevin gets worse Uh, Selena Gomez I've never heard her version so I couldn't tell you if it's it's probably shit but you know there you go I've nothing there (laughs) I'm I'm not done I'm not done Uh, Jason Donovan did a version of this song 
So, you know the end of Raiders where all the Nazis' faces melt? I think if I listened to Jason Donovan singing this, that that's what it would do to me. Uh, No, actually, the next version of this song and the final one I want to mention, this is the one that's going to make your face melt and explode. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) In 2009, Only You was covered by Carly Minogue and James Corden. So that is the point where humanity reaches Nadir. <laughs> yeah. We we've hit we've hit cultural bottom. <laughs> but yeah, that is a version of this song that exists. I'm afraid I cannot uh, undo time. So there you go. Hey God. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's c- coming back to the song. It's a ballad, but it's still poppy, it's still danceable, and it doesn't come across as too schmaltzy or as too saccharine. Yeah, I mean, in terms of it being danceable, it this is very much um before the before the lights come up um at the, the <laughs> at the end the end of the night. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, it's just a wonderful wonderful like from those opening dead simple synth parts right at the beginning, it lures you in, and then as soon as you get Alison Moyet's voice, it's got you. It's absolutely got you, and you don't even need the sheer emotionality of the chorus to like. If that does nothing to you, then you must be dead because it's a, it's fucking great. It is fucking great. Absolutely agree. Okay. So we then move on to the next song on the album, which is Goodbye 70s, which I believe is an Alison Moye uh, pen tune. It is indeed. So what do you think? Yeah, I like this. I like the way it bounces along. I can Again, I can hear Vince Clark's fondness for ABBA coming through on this. Mm-hmm. I think it has a real bitterness and bite to the lyrics. So, just to read a, a quote from Alison Moyet about what the song is about. I'm sorry if you were going to read this later, but but anyway. So, what she said, she in an interview with the NME, Alison Moyet said, Goodbye 70s is about punk and not caring how you were dressed. And then I discovered that so many of my friends that I thought it all really meant something to you just saw it as another trend. That's what Goodbye 70s was all about and how sour the whole thing became which I think is the perfect evisceration of the punk scene, or what the punk scene became, at least. A subject for another time, by the way. (laughs) Very much so. And I think the lyrics really cut to the heart of that, to the lights, to the trend setting in your head. Sunday night tears from youth cults already dead. I'm glad we don't hear you anymore. I'm tired of fighting in your fashion war. Goodbye, 70s. It's so much more visceral lyrically than anything we've heard thus far. And it has such a great groove to it. I think this song is a great tune. So I'm really, I'm really glad that you like it. I think it has a really exciting, exciting opening. It's an evisceration of the Malcolm McLaren takeover of punk. Mm-hmm. The, it became, it became about 
image and rather than do it yourself and that kind of thing. Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood. I was about to bring Vivian Westwood into it, so you jumped down the, the hole I was about to go into. But in terms of this song, again, balance between voice and sims is great. It's it's really... Do you know, like, the the kind of ABBA song? Because I'm really glad that you made that comparison because it made... It, it kind of, you know, does your mother know? Yep. Gave me those kind of vibes about it. I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's great. It You know, I've, I've really enjoyed this. The last thing I want to say before we do move on, this is another string to Alison Moyer's bow in that you can tell that she is someone that's sung in punk bands before. There's a real, well, as we just said, visceral, biting punk sensibility mm-hmm. to the way she sings the lyrics on this. And that just adds to my enjoyment of it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So we move on to the next song, Tuesday. Yeah. And yeah, we we change gear. And it's lovely. It's really simply put together. It's performed beautifully. I, I think vocally it is. So it's it's about a woman escaping an unhappy marriage. Woman of 30, husband and kids, chained to the dog she had to rid. No point in coping. Off came the lid. Pack up and drive away. So, I've said before, I like songs that tell a story, and I think the arrangement allows that story to come to the fore. Unfortunately for me, musically speaking, it's a bit plodding, I think. It doesn't really progress anywhere beyond that simple rhythm that that starts it off. I don't agree. I think the simplicity is the beauty of it, really. I just think to play that same structure over and over again for three plus minutes, whatever it is, you could do something else with the composition without it detracting from what Alison Moyer is singing and the story she is telling. There's a trick missed here. I think this could have been one of the standout tracks on the album. It's not. It's fine. I don't dislike it. It just happens. I do, so I am still going to disagree with you. I think that the simplicity is important because it allows her voice and the the story that she's trying to convey, it gives it the space. So I, I liked it. I enjoyed that it wasn't too complex because it gave the oxygen to the to the lyric to be able to, to develop and stuff. But I think there's a way you can do that which still provides some variety in the music. I think that has been done on earlier tracks. I think it was done on Midnight, for example, and I think it's done on the next track we're going to talk about. Okay, because I'm I really I really want to talk about the next track. Okay, let's talk about Winter Kills then. Go on. Oh my god! Like, how is this not more well known? Yep. Like, how is this not like the the other Yazoo song that you know? Mm-hmm. It is absolutely gorgeous. I could see it used in like montages in various films, like and obviously the title kind of gives you ideas of like sort of a, a sparse winter winter scene. Cinematic is the first word I've used. Absolutely right. So again, pulling slightly the curtain back. So as as I said said uh, like you know we try and listen to these albums several times to, in order to get a good feel for them. I have listened to this song many more times than I've listened to the album this week. I think it is an utterly stunning piece of music. 
that this simple piano and and drums add to the add to the absolute drama of it. She, Alison Moye sounds beguiling and amazing. Honestly, like it absolutely blew me away. Uh, no disagreement from me. So this is written by Alison Moye, and lyrically, I think this is beat you over the head with a blunt instrument. Brutal. Pain in your eyes makes me cruel, makes me spiteful. Tears are delightful. Welcome your nightfall. How winter kills. I'll tear at you searching for weaker seams. How winter kills. And, my God. I mean, the sound is completely different to everything else on the album. Yeah. You know, it starts with a piano part rather than a a synth part. Oh, God. The lyrics are visceral. They are soul-bearing. They are just out there, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. Yet the the music is so restrained, so delicate. That's the absolute beauty of it. The 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 music is restrained. It works. It works perfectly, and the the vocal performance just absolutely tears at your heart. And the lyrically as well. It it is it is such a visceral piece of music. Like I I was utterly blown away by it. Like I. We've said it wasn't an album that either of us particularly knew before The Clash. And I'm so glad that we've done it because I, I feel so fortunate to discover this piece of music because it's I've never heard it anywhere. I've never heard it and I can't believe that. Same here. This speaks to Alison Moyet's prowess as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. You could argue that it's out of place because it doesn't sound like anything else on here. I don't care. That's how good this is. It's beautiful. So in terms of position on the album, if if I was putting it together, would I finish the album with this? Maybe. But it it it, it would leave you in a different a different mental place, I suppose. Exactly that. So I have said about the final track, Bring Your Love Down, didn't I? I've said there's an argument that this should be swapped around with Winter Kills, but I can see why they wanted to end the album on a more upbeat note. And I'm not saying I agree or disagree with the decision, but if you listen to the album start to finish, it makes sense for Winter Kills not to close the album. As beautiful, as haunting, mm-hmm. and as final as it sounds, it makes sense for it to be appended with what we're about to talk about. Yeah, I think I do agree with how you've how you've characterized that that I suppose that you open with don't go. Yeah. To to finish with winter kills is a very different vibe. Whereas Bring Your Love Down mm-hmm. Didn't I kind of works as a piece. Yeah. But so that leads us on to the last song. Um because we can't, I mean, we've rhapsodized about Windsor Kills. And seriously, check it out if you've never heard it before. Because fuck me, like, it beautiful. blew me away. Anyway, Bring Your Love Down, didn't I? Which is much more sort of up-tempo than what's gone, gone well, immediately before. But I, I, I do really like it. It's It's got like kind of like a disco vibe to it, which, which seems weird. Well, that, does it seem weird when we've talked about ABBA influences no, I suppose not. It seems weird compared to Winter Kills that we've just talked about, but I think when you consider the album as a whole and these two albums as a piece, because I think you can look at them as such if you want, 
then I think it makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think in a similar way to puppets on Speak and Spell, this one is about control, but from the opposite side of things, this is about being the antagonist, being the person who you know your partner's too weak to make out make it on their own and to break out on their own. So again, I'll just read a couple of the lyrics. If you think you need a change, well, I'm sure we can arrange for you to get on your own for a while. But I don't need to worry because you'll get back in a hurry. I know that you like my style. You play your games, but the fact remains, I'm the only one that can hold your reins. Again, that's really jagged. Very controlling, yeah. Yeah. Jagged is is a nice way to describe it. I like the fact that every song on side two of this album is about finality, is about the end of something, all from different perspectives, even on different themes. You've mm-hmm. Goodbye 70s is about the end of the punk era. It's not about the end of a relationship. The whole of the second half of this album feels of a piece, even though there are some very diverse sounds and styles within that. Mm-hmm. Thematically, there is a connection there, and I really do respond to that sort of thing. So to sound slightly wanky, as I am prone to on occasion, like the second side of the album is very much fan de siècle. It's like end of an era. Mm-hmm. It's... Like, it's all end of something. So end of a relationship, end of punk, end of potentially end of your life. You know, it's it's there's all kinds of endings is the second half of this album. Indeed. I like it. I like the way the album finishes it, sonically at least, in a very similar style to the way it begins. And, well, it's another synth pop anthem that showcases both Alison Moyet's vocal dexterity and Vince Clark's ability to craft a riff that will stay in your head for a long time. Um, yep, yeah, I like Bring Your Love Down, didn't I? It's a good song. Yeah, it's, it, it is a good song. So that is the end of the album. Mm. Should we discuss the reviews? Uh, yes, I think we should. So uh, over to you. What reviews would you like to read? So Melody Maker hailed hailed it as an album of rich, dark passion, forever burying the hoary old moan that electronics and synthesizers will never be any good because they don't have any button on the front that says emotion. And surprisingly, the Melody Maker has actually said something of relevance. (laughs) Absolutely. Something that they very rarely did during their entire existence. Quite so. So a retrospective review by David Jeffries of All Music, um, when comparing with Speak and Spell, it says... While Speak and Spell is by far the more consistent record, Upstairs at Eric's is wholly more satisfying, beating the Depeche record on substance and ambition, and is light years ahead in emotion. The clumsier experimental tracks make most people head for the hits collection, but to do so would be to miss the album's great twist. Like its curious cover, Upstairs at Eric's presents a fractured, well-lit and paranoid urban landscape. And that is a fucking great way to describe it. Yeah, I agree. However, there were naysayers. So before we get to um, Lord Nobbington, we um, go to Ken Tucker of the Philadelphia Inquirer, who gave the album one star and referred to Yaz as stiff-voiced monotony fans. I mean, stiff-voiced. Have you not listened to the fucking album? Bollocks. Like, if there's one thing you can definitely say about Alison Moyer is she's not stiff-voiced, but there you go. Um, and saying that the group were even more pretentious than most, working the Lord's Prayer into their tedious synthesizer rhythms. 
there may be a point there, but I'm sorry, you've undercut it by fucking stiff-voiced. Yeah, exactly. No bollocks. Uh, so before we get on to Sir Nobbington, I would like to read from the Rolling Stone review, if I may. Yeah, go ahead. Written by J.D. Considine, uh, Paddy's lad. <laughs> um, Upstairs at Eric's is one of those maddening albums with a lot of good ideas, but only a few great cuts. Although the album kicks off with the full-throttle funk of Don't Go, and features several other numbers sparked by Moyet's throaty, Nona Hendrix-style vocals and Clark's propulsive electronics, situation turns out to be more than the exception than the rule. Yaz may be capable of setting down a searing groove, but they're equally given to leaning on cliches. Even more disorienting is the discovery that the dance beat numbers are flanked by moody, experimental pieces that are essentially trite or hopelessly pretentious. Carefully pruned, upstairs at Eric's could have set a synth-pop benchmark. As it stands, it's just another good album that could have been a whole lot better. Again, unnecessarily reductive and a bit sniffy about this newfangled electronic nonsense, if you ask me. Yeah, very much so. All right, shall we listen to what our good friend Robert Criscow has to say about this album? With due um, sense of annoyance uh, prepared. Yeah, and uh, with good reason. Okay, so as we said last week, writing for The Village Voice, Robert Criscow, he said, If Depeche Mode, the most bloodless synth DOR unit this side of the German Federal Republic, can spin off such a soulful second generation, all is not lost. A tape-layered playlet does disfigure side one, with that I agree, but better god-awful than bland. And before you complain about Vince Clark's hackneyed take on modern romance, you ought to remember that he only rejoined the human race a few months ago. I like to imagine that the agent of his salvation was New Age tough mama Alf Moyet. And I know for sure that the agent of her salvation is Clark, whose spare, bright, intriguing, juicy electro-comp makes the credible compelling. Oh, for fuck's sake like honestly that's (laughs) like honestly that really annoyed me that review alf moye fuck off you fucking cockwomble so to give him some not credit to give him some dues alf is the nickname by which alison moye was known in her punk days and was also the title of her debut solo album so he hadn't plucked that out of thin air I mean, if that's all I'm defending him for, I know I'm on extremely thin ice, but I feel I should at least stick up for him in some instances. No, because the if he's now become human and she's managed to save him and he saved her, oh, you insufferable prick. Patronising, self-aggrandising prick. Absolutely right. Awful, awful awful and why is he still banging on about Depeche Mode okay I know why it's only a year after but (sighs) annoying he's a lazy hack he is a lazy hack anyway there you go (laughs) legacy Kev what have you got for us 
Okay, so the album did all right, as we've as we discussed when we did the um, top trumps, and they they managed to create an American buzz about them. So only you, their second single in North America, reached sixty seven, and as we said about situation, it you know it became like a hit, like so it hit the Billboard one hundred. So you know they they had a proper buzz going about them. They released the second album. However, as Tim has alluded to in an earlier quote, there were difficulties in the relationship between the two of them because Vince didn't speak. And <laughs> like, well, not, well, not not that Vince didn't speak. Neither of them really spoke to each other. They kind of did their own thing. They turned up at the studio, and then stuff occurred. And that is yes. not a good way for a band to kind of function. No, <laughs> no, indeed. May I read a quote from Alison Moyer? Certainly. So, well, f- firstly, so yeah, You and Me Both was the follow-up album. And as we've said with several bands, it wasn't quite as successful, but it still got to number one in the UK and it reached number 69 in the US. So it wasn't by any stretch of the imagination a, a failure. But as Kev said, that you know the tensions between the two really you know, manifested themselves on this album in terms of the recording process. So... Again, in an interview with The Quietus in 2011, Alison Moyet said, uh, we had problems before the second album. I think the second album happened because of advice from his publisher. Because Vince had done one album with Depeche and had walked, and they had done one album with me, and he was ready to walk again. I think his publisher was going, you're mad. You shouldn't be doing this. You should make at least one more record. But even as we began the second album, we knew it was over. He'd already decided he didn't want to work with me anymore. It was Vince's decision, but I can't remember if it was on the phone or how he told me. I remember asking him to reconsider on one occasion, but he was absolutely adamant that he was out. So when we made the second album, we were entirely working on our own. He'd go in the mornings, and I'd go in the evenings. He'd do something, then later I'd do something on top of that. It was like a patchwork album, where there was no discussion or getting excited about each other's things. We just worked separately. Which is, um, it's quite sad. Yeah, and, you know, unfortunately that kind of working dynamic is never going to support a long-term project, really. They were two separate people who happened to be in the same band. Exactly. So following the split in the band, which only happened sort of days after um, the release of Nobody's Diary in May 83, they went their separate ways. So Vince Clark formed The Assembly with Eric Radcliffe, and the the concept was to record a series of one-off singles with different vocalists, but they only ever did one single, which was with Fergal Sharkey. Vince Clark then meets Andy Bell again through an advert in the Melody Maker, I, I seem to seem to recall, mm-hmm. and go on to have quite the successful career. Alison Moyer goes on to have her own successful solo career, and eventually the band get back together to do some shows. Um, so between 2008 and 2011, they come back together, they reconcile the, their differences and do some performances, which is which is boss. I think what you can also say as well, the the legacy of this album, certainly the influence it had on the incipient house mm-hmm. movement where a kind of techno-electronica beat um, with a really strong female vocal 
that was massive and like massively influenced the development of dance music going forward. Absolutely, it did. And we joked, well, I joked earlier around the sampling of Midnight on early 90s Euro dance records. But you're absolutely right in your observation there. It did 10 years beforehand set a template there. And, well, uh, there's a few things. So there's an interesting story to Alison Moyet's solo career or the start of her solo career. But I'd just like to read a couple of quotes from her, if I may, about her early days following the split of of Yazoo. Mm -hmm. So this is again from that quietest interview in 2011. She said, it was a really miserable time. My lawyer had told me I was free to sign worldwide and I never had a deal with Mute because that's not how they worked. However, there was a deal with Warner Brothers where they'd released the albums. My lawyer told me I was free to sign with Sony worldwide and then promptly disappeared. By the next week, I was injuncted by Warner Brothers. That was a really bad time. I had no contact with anybody other than my lawyer, an accountant, who weren't talking to me, and I was injuncted, and there was no way of getting out of it. I said, I'll pop into Warner Brothers, and did a deal that was stupidly punitive just to get back to work again. I became agoraphobic and quite ill, and Sony who was CBS at the time, their attitude had been, just come back when you've sorted this all out. They weren't going to help me with it. So I didn't see them for a year. In the first meeting with them after that, I was a complete space cadet, and I was too mad to really consider what was happening. A year of not really leaving the house and not having spoken to anyone was not conducive to making a good move. And we spoke about this sort of thing a long time back with the Stone Roses and how they moved from Silvertone onto Geffen. Mm-hmm. And I guess it just shows, without trying to bring politics into it, how the corporate machine can swallow people up without any real consideration of people's mental and physical health. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to read a small thing from um, Wikipedia in relation to the 2008 reunion. So Moye had planned to perform songs from the second album for a long time, but it hadn't happened. And having no immediate plans for more solo work after the release of her 2007 album, The Turn, and aware that Mute were planning to issue remastered versions of the Yazoo albums, she emailed Clark to see if he was interested in the idea of reunion. Um, Vince Clark welcomed her message but said he was committed to Erasure and felt it would be disloyal to Andy Bell if he returned to work with Moye. But shortly afterwards, Bell told Clark he wanted a break and obviously that led to him to reconsider. Mm-hmm. Vince Clark contacted Andy Bell to say, do you have any objections then if I perform as Yazoo again? And Andy Bell's response, and this is part of the reason I decided to bring it up, had been simply to ask Clark for tickets for the reunion shows. <laughs> Brilliant. (laughs) That's really good. Fair play. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, uh, there's a nice coda to this in that Yazoo's final performance was on the 14th of May 2011 at the Short Circuit Festival, which was organised by Mute Records. And Alison Moyer said of that performance that she was 99.9% sure it's the last time. It was really good that Vince and I had come through the whole circle of being really angry with each other, forgetting what we'd been angry about, and forgetting that there was ever any displeasure. That's a that's a nice way to bring that story to a conclusion, I think. Yeah, definitely. That they had the they had the reunion, it went well, and that's it. And 
good on him. Mm. So the one thing we haven't mentioned is, it, so we talked about Erasure in terms of Andy Bell and, and, and that, but the real legacy for Vince Clark is Erasure. Erasure produced songs such as Sometimes, A Little Respect, Stop, I Love to Hate You. Just a consistent stream of classic pop bangers for, I don't know, seven, eight years. Mm -hmm. And as you said right at the start of this episode, that's probably Vince Clark's true legacy. Yeah, you cannot think of 80s electronica without Vince Clark. That's how big his influence is over over it. And, you know, you don't have, I, I would argue, if you didn't have Yazoo, you don't have Pet Shop Boys. You don't, like, there's loads of people who you don't have if this do, doesn't happen. Yep, I agree entirely with that. And that's why I wanted to uh, salute the works of Vince Clark. And, and I don't have anything else to say about Legacy, to be honest with you. No, so um, let's go on to best song, worst song. Yeah, okay. Uh, let's go. Well, I'll do a worst song first because it's it's as we said, it's not really a song, but it's on the album, so uh, it's I before E, except that to see. It's it's irritating, it's self indulgent, doesn't belong on the album, so fuck off. Oh, my best song, Winter Kills, is a beautiful song. It's brutal. It's emotional I like midnight as well and obviously you've got only you which is which is great but I'm going to be Captain Obvious again to be honest with you Don't Go is just brilliant stick it on any indie disco whatever it is stick Don't Go on everyone's going to get up on the dance floor and have a good time to it and so for that reason it's my best song how about you so worst song's dead easy because it's I I before E after C yeah like we it's not a song so yeah it that's quite easy best song is a is is really tough so I could I could have gone with don't go I could have gone with only you but because and this may well be recency bias because it absolutely knocked the shit out of me <laughs> when when I first heard it it's winter kills. It's beguiling. It like honestly, like I think I could listen to it on repeat. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, I can't. Um, I can't really argue with your choices there. And I think it comes down to to personal choice. So fair enough. All right. Well, it's that time again. Every fortnight, we come to the point where the whole concept of this show comes to fruition. So it's down to scoring. So, your choice of Clash, so your start. Yeah, okay. So, what do I think about Speak and Spell by Depeche Mode? It's an album with a lot of youthful energy and rawness. And that goes a long way for me. I like the way it combines so many influences from the electronica scene, as well as, as we said last week, classic pop from the 60s and 70s to create some really wonderful pop songs. I do think it is a more consistent album than Upstairs at Eric's in terms of sonically, the way each song is constructed. There's one or two songs on there that I don't think are great. I don't respond at all 
positively to what's your name. I think Depeche Mode became more than Speak and Spell. I think Vince Clark became more than Speak and Spell. This is a good album. It's not a great album. And so 7 out of 10 is my score. What do you give it? So I think a lot of the things that you've said kind of covered how I felt about it. Sonically, it is a much more consistent album. It's got some belters on there. It, like the, the last song on the album is an absolute all-time classic. So, you know, it's got that going for it. There's elements about it that I don't particularly like. It, it's a funny thing, the, this album, because as as you were, you, you were kind of talking about, is that whilst this is the start of their journey, this has no relation to, to where they go. It's a good album. And I was surprised because I, wa- I wasn't sure what I was going to think of it, but I did enjoy it. There's some really good stuff on there. There's some stuff I don't particularly like. So I think 7 out of 10 is a really fair score. So that's where I'm coming down as well. Okay, so that means Speaking Spell gets 14 out of 20, which seems to me a beatable score, but we'll have to see where we go on Upstairs at Eric's, and it's you to lead off. Okay, this album, it shows the progression in Vince Clark's writing. The high points on this album are so much higher than most of the stuff on Speaking Spell. You also have, whilst Dave Garns, you know, has has a cracking voice, he doesn't compare to Alison Moyer, in in, no. my, in my <laughs> my opinion. She is utterly stunning on this album. There are two songs that are universally recognised as classics, and obviously the song that I picked as my best track, I think is an underappreciated classic, to be honest. So whilst it has two tracks that do try your patience a little bit, the second half of the album is so, so strong. So I'm going to come down with an eight because I think it is a stronger piece of work and the high points are so much higher, largely. Okay, uh, so again, I'm not going to say much to contradict you there. Upstairs, Eric's is more accomplished and more varied than Speak and Spell. It's high points. Yeah, they probably are higher, or certainly as high as as the high point of Speak and Spell, which is, as you said, just can't get enough. There are two all-time classic pop songs on Upstairs at Eric's. Well, one of which is a dance floor banger, one of which, as you said, is a is a end-of-the-night spoocher. Well, as was shown in the final episode of the UK version of The Office. <laughs> I would say that the low point of Upstairs at Eric's is significantly lower than the low point of Speak and Spell. Much as I dislike What's Your Name, it's nowhere near as self-indulgent as I before That is going to count against Upstairs at Eric's, to be honest with you. But yes, aside from the two obvious high points you've got winter kills is a phenomenal track i love midnight i don't think it's strong enough to get an eight out of ten because i think it flits between pop and experimentalism a bit too much if i'm honest but i do think it's a better album than speak and spell and therefore seven and a half out of ten is the score that i am going to give to upstairs at eric's which means it gets 15 and a half. Yeah, that's right. 
And so with that score of 15.5, compared to 14 out of 20, Upstairs at Eric's by Yazoo is the winner of this week's, well, this two weeks, album clash. Uh, so congratulations to Vince Clark. You have beaten Vince Clark. Well done. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Possibly this could be represented by some kind of Superman 3 um, fight in a junkyard between Vince Clark and evil <laughs> Vince Clark. You can decide which one's which. <laughs> but but whichever one is your good Vince Clark needs to beat evil Vince Clark by just throwing loads of tyres around him for some reason. And then sticking him in a uh, compactor. <laughs> also, Superman is like evil because he's flicking peanuts. <laughs> well, and he was exposed to tar. So basically, it's like Superman's evil because he was smoking facts. <laughs> so... Smoking not only kills, but it apparently makes you evil and will make you <laughs> flick peanuts at the mirror. If he'd like been on roll-ups, he would have been all right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was this week's Clash. Well, I enjoyed that. That was good fun. Two albums with which neither of us was hugely familiar. Yeah, it's, it, it's good to do something new. Indeed it is. Well, and on that note, uh, what are we going to be doing in our next Clash, Kev? So I have I have ruminated on this for the past uh, couple of weeks. and I wasn't sure where I was going because I could could go back a couple of years and look at some some more of the uh, pioneers of electronica i could go a bit further back and look at uh, look at the the true genesis of electronica i could have gone to our safe space in the 90s but i have not decided to do that i've decided to go not entirely modern but at least within the same century as we are currently in so our next clash will be 2006 The Warning by Hot Chip Ooh. and it will go up against 2007's Myths of the Near Future by Claxons. Okay. One of those albums I have never listened to in full before. Uh, I won't tell you which one. Uh, so yeah, very good. Very good. Okay. I'm glad we've gone into the 21st century because um, we don't do that often enough, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, we re- we really need to do it a bit more. We do. Uh, okay, good stuff though. Uh, so next week, I'm going to be going through the warning by Hot Chip, and in two weeks' time, Kev, you're going to be going through Myths of the Near Future by Claxons. Okay, great stuff. Before then, though, how might people keep in touch with what we are doing here on Album Clash and our celebrity-endorsed social media accounts? So, um. If you are so inclined, you may uh, want to go on Twitter and, well, laugh at the footage of vaccine knobhead Joe Rogan having his arse handed to him on his own podcast. (laughs) It's quite enjoyable. It's very enjoyable. (laughs) Or just drinking uh, Novak Djokovic being um, deported from Australia. Also incredibly enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Or whilst on Twitter, you can checking out those uh, those things. You can check out our Twitter at Clash Album. If you are a fan of carefully curated quality content that is endorsed by Norman Cook himself, uh, you can go to our Insta at Clash Album. Or if you are resolutely old school, you can send us an electronic mail at albumclash at gmail.com. 
So if you'd like to be as cool as Fatboy Slim himself, Norman Cook, then uh, follow us on Insta and Twitter and uh, send me an abusive email. Also, like, subscribe, leave your ratings, leave your reviews, tell all your mates about us, get everyone to listen, because it's, well, it's not dead good, but, you know, people are still listening, so you obviously like something we're doing. (laughs) So, yeah, next time we are going through Hot Chip versus the Klaxons. Until then, however, I have been Tim. And I was once known as Cav. And we will see you next time. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye now. Salah. Bye.